Thank you, Mike. Good morning, everyone. Good to see y'all. Like Mike said, like you just read, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8 this morning. So uh, why don't you go ahead and turn turn there if you haven't already. For the past several weeks, and even uh, for the past several months, really, in Matthew, uh, really everything has been centered on Jesus's authority. Okay, we've just been witnessing all of these demonstrations of Jesus's authority. We've seen him teach with authority. That's what the the crowd said after the Sermon on the Mount. They said, this is a guy, not like our scribes, this is a guy who teaches with authority. We've seen that he has authority over diseases and sickness. Remember, he he healed a leper, he healed Peter's mother-in-law, practically healed the entire town of Capernaum. Then we saw that he has authority over nature. He and the disciples, they get caught in this huge storm on the Sea of Galilee, and he's asleep. He wakes up. He says, stop, you storm. <laughs> and it stops. And that's it. No more storm. And last week, we saw that Jesus has authority over the spiritual world. He cast out demons from these, these two men. The demons actually begged Jesus to just leave them alone. They said, please, just, just send us into those pigs over there and leave us alone, please. And so, so Jesus did. He freed two men from their spiritual bondage. But what did the people on the other side of the shore of the Sea of Galilee, what did they think of Jesus's authority? This is how we ended last week in Matthew 8, 34, which says, and behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. They begged this man with such authority to just go away, please. And so that's how our text begins this morning, chapter 9, verse 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. After journeying across the sea through a terrible storm to see these people, the people say, no thanks. Perfectly happy with our own authority. Thank you. Go away. And so Jesus does just that. He crosses back over the sea, goes back to his own city, which is the city of Capernaum. That's where Jesus is living at the time. And so that's where we are this morning. But before we go much further, I want to pause for a moment, lest you think, can you believe those people? I'm still bent out of shape about those people on the other other side of the Sea of Galilee. They would rather, they would settle for the status quo. They prefer the the spiritual oppression of of these two men over the authority of Jesus. Happy to settle for so much, so much less rather than yield their lives to the authority of Jesus. Oh, foolish people. So foolish. Our text this morning is going to stop us right there and force us to recognize that we are just as foolish. We are the fool. When you read the Bible stories, we're the fools of the Bible stories. So happy to settle for so much less so long as it means that we get to maintain authority over our lives. That's what we're so often convinced that we need in our lives. I mean, isn't that what like New Year's resolutions are all about? Taking charge of your life, exercising authority over your life that you you didn't exercise last year. I don't have anything against goals, you know, or resolutions in general. It's it's good to set goals for yourself, but it's also good to, to remember and to recognize that you were just as much in charge of your life last year as you will be this year. And you're going to do just as awesome of a job. So more authority isn't what you need. That's not what you need. Don't 
Don't settle for that. Instead, I think the story today of a paralyzed man whose sins are forgiven, whose paralysis is healed, I think this story reorients our assumptions about what we think we need in our lives. I think this story reveals to us what we really need in our lives, which is four things specifically, four main takeaways from our text today. Not three, four. I decided to switch it up today. Four main takeaways from our text, they all concern what, they, what we really need in our lives, and they are that we need Christ-centered community, we need a Christ-centered perspective, we need Christ-centered theology, and these three things, Christ-centered community, a Christ-centered perspective, and Christ-centered theology, they ought to lead us to center us on the most important takeaway that more than anything, we need Christ Jesus to forgive us our sins, to forgive our sins. That's what we need more than anything, and that's what we'll be talking about this morning. I see some of y'all scrambling in your notes. We're going to come back to these. This is just, I'm giving you the answers now, but I'll talk about them still as we go on. So don't feel like you got to, this is your only chance, okay? Let's pray once more, and then we'll dive into our text. Father, thank you for your grace to us this morning. Thank you for a building to meet in, for uh, air conditioning or heat, probably heat this morning, air conditioning this afternoon. (laughs) Thank you for all that you've given us. I pray that we would remember, we would recognize you're our provider, that like we sang, we depend on you for everything. I thank you that you're not only the one we need, that you provide what we need through your son. Pray that we would fall more in love with the gift of your son this morning. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so we've already read verse 1. Okay, so we saw Jesus cross the sea. He's back in Capernaum. So now let's get to verse 2 of Matthew chapter 9, which says, And behold, some people brought to him, meaning Jesus, a paralytic, lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. I've mentioned in previous sermons that the other gospels sometimes give more details than Matthew does. So if you read Mark chapter 2 or Luke chapter 5, you'll see this same exact story, except where here Matthew just says, hey, some people brought Jesus, this paralyzed dude, which sounds nice and straightforward. Mark and Luke include the fact that these people didn't just bring the paralytic to Jesus. They actually removed, they, they removed a towel of the roof. They, they cut a hole in the roof of a house that Jesus was teaching in that was just so crowded with people, you couldn't even get into the door. And there's, they made a hole and lowered a grown man, that's a big hole, lowered a grown man down in front of Jesus. It's an incredible story, but that's not Matthew's focus this morning. That's why he doesn't tell us about it. He's actually drawing us into not the amazing story of how the man was brought before Jesus, but instead what Jesus said once he was there. Matthew writes, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, and now this is what Matthew wants you to remember from the story. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, there's a lot to unpack there, and so we're actually just going to park in this verse for a little bit. First, I want to talk about this man and the people that carried him there, and then we'll talk about what Jesus says to him. Sound good? Notice what he says here. When Jesus saw 
their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. When he saw their faith, this is not an individual effort. This was a a group effort to the point that it's obvious that had it not been for these people that brought the paralytic to Jesus, then the paralytic would not have had the opportunity to hear Jesus say these words to him, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. So as Jesus sees their faith, the paralyzed man and the people carrying him, this group, he sees that they so recognized Jesus' authority that they organized a way of getting the paralyzed man into Jesus' presence, whatever it took, by literally carrying him, even lowering him through a roof. I think there's no better picture of bearing one another's burdens than this one. The love shown by these friends or family members, we don't even know, some people around this paralyzed man. They are lifting him up in his weakness and bringing him to Jesus, this man with authority. Which brings us to our first takeaway. What we need in our lives, we don't need more authority or our lives. Don't buy into that rabbit chase. We don't need more authority. What we need is Christ-centered community. We need Christ-centered community. You need friends like this. You need people who will carry you to Jesus, people who will lift you up when you're at your weakest and who will bear your burdens. We need Christ-centered community. This guy's community carried him to Jesus, pointed him to Christ. He couldn't do it without them. Who knows where he'd be without them? And that's the type of community we should not only strive for, but we need. Now, You may have community. In fact, I think all of us have community. We all exist in some sort of community. We have our our family. That's a sort of community. We have our our friend group. We have maybe our small group uh, here in the church. We have coworkers. We have our neighborhood. We have our school. Whatever it is, we all have community. But is your community, do you have community that's carrying you to Jesus? Our communities, they all carry us somewhere. They all, they all carry us to what they view as important or to the things they believe are worth chasing after. For example, when your kids are young and they're in the house or living with you, they think whatever mom or dad thinks is cool, that that's what's cool. You know, I love baseball, so my son loves baseball. You know, we, we as a family, we love being outside, so my kids love being outside. But then, as kids get older, they become a part of a different community. They're classmates. My friends, you know, some girl named Rebecca or whatever. (laughs) And their friends begin to carry them to new values, new definitions of cool. And all the things that mom and dad are into become just like a gigantic eye roll beneath them. So whether you know it or not, your community carries you to what it values and believes is valuable, and it believes is life-giving and worth making sacrifices for, and we can't help but go where they're going. And so, where is your, the community around you, where is your community carrying you? Where is your community saying, hey, this is where you need to be. This is the most valuable use of your time in this season, right here, right now. Is your community fixing your eyes on Jesus or on something else? Does your community lift you up in your weakness? 
Do they take you as you are, weak as you are, or must you first prove your strength or your worthiness in order to not be left behind? We need Christ-centered community. Some people just like those who carried this paralyzed man to take you where you are often too weak, too self-centered, too arrogant, too paralyzed by your own sin to go to Jesus. We need community that isn't afraid of weakness, but rather lifts up the weak, carries us to the only one who can give hope to weak sinners like ourselves. Do you have this type of community in your life? Are you even looking for this type of community? Is that even important? This paralyzed man did, and look where his community carried him. To the only one able to say this, look at this. He saw their faith. He said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus looks at the man and he calls him my son, this term of endearment. It's a way of communicating, you're not just a, a nobody. You're not just some stranger. You have value to me. You're important to me. He says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And here's what this, this man and his friends, here's what they know about Jesus. They know he has power to heal the sick. You know, there have been a lot of healings in Capernaum, so they know that. He, he has authority over sickness and disease. They also know that he has spiritual authority to cast out demons. That's happened in Capernaum. Maybe they've heard that he has power over nature and authority over nature. Maybe they've, it's, you know, the story's kind of trickled through and they've heard about the calming of the storm. And that's the Jesus they've come to see. But Jesus instead demonstrates a different authority altogether. And he says, your sins are forgiven. If you were that paralyzed man and your friends physically carried you to the healing guy of Capernaum and they lower you through the roof to be in his presence, what are you hoping Jesus will say? I'm hoping he'll say, rise and walk. That's why I'm there. But that's not what Jesus says at all. He's like, your sins are forgiven. And I'd be like, and? What else? Please? Wouldn't you sort of be disappointed? I mean, I would. In my last sermon, I talked about how I have type 1 diabetes, and that's just one of my ailments. I have a lot of my, I don't work well. My genes, my DNA is not good for the human race, right? Okay, I'm bringing all of us down. And if I knew there was someone in town who could heal me, I heard he healed a bunch of other people, and I finally get in front of this guy, and what he says to me is, your sins are forgiven. I'd say, no, give me what you gave them. What's wrong with me? Why won't you give me that? The I'm here for the good stuff, for the healing. Fix my body, remove the pain, make me feel better. And I don't think I'm the only one, hopefully, that would, that would feel that way, which shows our second takeaway from this text. And not only do we need Christ-centered community, we need a Christ-centered perspective. I need some perspective. We need a perspective on our life which can recognize that the forgiveness of sins is of far greater value than the healing of the body. That spiritual healing is a far greater value than physical healing, far greater value. Jesus actually says this pretty explicitly later on in Matthew 18, verse 8. He says, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. 
Listen, it's better for you to enter life, eternal life, crippled or lame, than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. What he's saying is, if this paralyzed man was healed, but his sins remain unforgiven, then Jesus has simply made his journey to hell all the more comfortable. We need forgiveness far more than we need freedom from physical ailments and obstacles. And of course, we know that. Like we, we know that that's the right answer. But do we live as if that's the right answer? They know so often we're like, those fools, you fools, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. We'd rather have control. We'd rather have authority over our own lives. Hey, just heal me, Jesus. That's all I'm asking for. I'm in charge here. You just heal me so I can get back to doing the things that I want to do, feeling the way I want to feel. We don't want forgiveness of sins because we don't realize that all of our striving ceases once our sins are forgiven. Here's the flaw in our perspective. We don't realize that what we really want more than anything in the world is right standing before God. That's what we all, from the depths of our souls, really want. And I'm not saying it's limited to, to Christians. Whether you're a Christian or you're not, we don't even realize it. We're always searching for something, longing for something, pursuing what will satisfy us. We're chasing after something. We just don't know what we're chasing. And that's why every time we finally get to the thing that we're really working for, whatever that thing is, a good job, someone to love, respect from your peers, a new house, we've all chased after something for a long season, and then we've finally gotten it, but once it's in your grasp, does it ever satisfy your desires like you thought it would? No, we're always left like a little bit shell-shocked, like, oh, what do I, oh, this is awful, and I hate myself right? And we're always left a little shell-shocked, wondering what are we supposed to chase next? Our longing for more never ends. We have this eternal longing, which means that if we could ever hope to be satisfied, to find an end to our longing, then what we really need to cure our eternal longing is an eternal source, an eternal wellspring to quench our eternal thirst for more and more and more. There's only one eternal source. There's only one eternal author of life. There's only one who is good and eternally only does good, as we sang this morning. And so the psalmist writes in Psalm 107, verse 9, for he, I mean God, satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Or Psalm 34, 9 through 10, O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, meaning the things that are in charge out there in the wilderness. No one has more authority than young lions out in the wilderness. They can get, eat whatever they want. They suffer from hunger, suffer want, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. God is the only one capable of satisfying our constant longing because he's the only one who can eternally provide the good things that we are hungering for. But there's something, there's a problem. There's something that stands between us and this eternal wellspring, and it's us. It's our sin. As Isaiah 59, verse 2 says, your iniquities have made a separation between you 
and your God, this eternal wellspring. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear your cries for provision, is what Isaiah is referencing. Our sin separates us from God, from the one who satisfies our longing. There's this separation, and we're responsible for it. And so long as there's this distance between us and our eternal wellspring, there will be no end to our longing. And so my point is, though we don't often realize it or consider it, what we really want is forgiveness of sins, right standing before God, to no longer be cast out of God's presence, to have nothing no longer separating us from the presence of the God who satisfies our deepest longing. That's why we need Jesus. Jesus says in John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Why? Because Jesus removes the distance. Jesus eliminates the separation between you and what you long for, or better yet, who you long for, our eternal wellspring and our eternal God. We need this Christ-centered perspective to reorder our priorities so that we're not stuck in this constant cycle of chasing after things that won't satisfy. We need a Christ-centered perspective. As this paralyzed man is lying there before Jesus, he hears these words from the only one who can remove the distance between him and God. Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. There's no distance you're not cast away. There's no longer any separation. You may feel like the lowest of the low, the outcast of the outcast, the sinner of sinners. Your sins are forgiven. Take heart. That is a Christ-centered perspective that we all desperately need. Take heart. In the midst of whatever you're going through, your sins are forgiven. If God has called you to himself, if he's made you his child, he's your loving father, and he, through the life, sacrifice, and resurrection of Jesus, has permanently removed the distance between you and him. Remember how Paul describes our relationship to God, all based on the foundation of Christ in Romans 8. Paul says, I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Just in case you had any other thoughts of what could separate you, nothing else can separate us. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So take heart. Live in light of this truth, that the things you long for, things you so often long for will disappoint you. You could be free from disease. You could have all the money in the world. You could have the most amazing relationship to you know, the person of your dreams. But if you lack the forgiveness of sins, you'll never find rest. Come to Jesus who, who rescues the lowly, who forgives our sins and satisfies your desires. Now, as we move on to verse 3, I'm going to pick up the pace a little bit now. I thought the whole forgiveness of sins thing was important, um, so I spent some time on it. But now, if this paralyzed man is this beautiful example of what we look like when we come to Jesus empty-handed, with nothing lowly, dependent on his grace, 
Now in verses three and four, we see a much different picture of coming to Jesus. Unfortunately, one that most of, here, most of us here in the Bible Belt will easily relate to. So we encounter some scribes, some teachers of the law. Verse three and four says, and behold, some of the scribes said to themselves about Jesus, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? So let's talk about these scribes. I don't want you to get the wrong idea about the scribes. We're going to continue to encounter them throughout the book of Matthew. Here's what you need to know. A scribe was a religious leader in Israel, and they're like expert teachers of God's word. These guys are, are brilliant men. They are smarter than anyone in this room, smarter than you. They are more disciplined than you are. They spend more time in prayer, more time studying their Bible. They have the first five books of the Old Testament memorized. If we did a poll of everyone, you know, name the Ten Commandments, it would be rough, right? These guys are smart. They're not the cartoonish dweebs that we make them out to be as we read the scriptures sometimes. Like just kind of muddling about like, oh, let's get Jesus. No. These guys are, these are the guys of their day holding the line on orthodoxy. They're the ones holding the line on good theology in their day. These are the guys protecting their culture from going too liberal. That's the scribes. And because of this fight for orthodoxy, as they hear this man, a human, Jesus, declare by his own authority that the paralyzed man's sin is forgiven, they get upset. This man, Jesus, just forgave, forgave someone's sin. A man just spoke on behalf of God. Only God can declare someone's sin to be forgiven. They probably have Isaiah 43, 11 and verse 25 on their mind. I I am the Lord beside me. There is no Savior. I, I am he who blots out transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. So who's the one who can save people from their sin and forgive sins and blots out transgressions? Isaiah says, the Lord, God does, and there's no other. Anyone else walking around saying it? There is no other Savior. And so these scribes jump to the conclusion. Before considering what Jesus is even saying, before considering the scope of his ministry, before any sort of conversation with Jesus, and before considering whether or not they might have some blind spots in their own theology, they jump to this conclusion. This man is blaspheming. There's no humility in their position. Oh, they know. They know they're right. They know they can't be wrong. They, they've studied the scriptures. They know they're right. This man is blaspheming. He's slandering God's name. He's saying something untrue about God that seriously demeans God's character. That's the immediate conclusion they come to in their hearts. And in so doing, what do they do? They blaspheme. They're guilty of the very thing they're so quick to condemn in Jesus. These are brilliant men with wisdom, passion, discipline, reverence for God, excellent prayer lives. They're probably excellent teachers devoted to applying the scriptures to their lives. They've got good theology. Only God can forgive sin. Yes, spot on, correct answer. But what's all of their wisdom and discipline and theology centered on? Themselves. It's all for them, and that's the problem. Their good theology is centered on themselves. It's self-terminating. It's all about presenting themselves up, probably themselves up as righteous, 
and denouncing everyone else who isn't. That's man-centered theology. The texts that they lift up and emphasize in the Bible are centered on, well, which verses do I like or I feel like I'm, I'm good at? Which ones do I think are most important? Which ones do I like to study? Tithing, mint, and dill, they're great at that. And so they denounce everybody who isn't. Doing no work on the Sabbath, they're awesome at that. So they denounce everyone who isn't. And you know what that's like because we all do the same thing. If we're honest with ourselves, especially in Reformed evangelical cultures. We lift up our favorite Bible verse. Look here, it says, preach the word. Oh, you do topical sermons? I guess you like preaching your word, not God's word. Oh, look, gender roles. Yeah, we, well, we take our cues from what the Bible says, not what culture says. We're not like that bad church down the street that lets a woman have a podcast. <laughs> that church is bad. That church is woke. That church is too charismatic. Well, that church is just a little too trendy. That church is too shallow. That church is blaspheming. When you read these Bible stories, or when you read about the scribes, remember what I said at the beginning, we're the fools of the Bible. These scribes emphasize certain things in the Bible to their own advantage as a way of demonstrating, propping up their righteousness before others. Their theology was man-centered. That was their problem. And we, the Parkway Church, must be careful to not make the same mistake. Theology is never meant for building up your reputation. Good theology brings you low. Good theology does not prop up your reputation. Good theology brings you low. Don't you remember how Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. They're the ones who will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, not the quick to denounce or condemn the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Good theology never sets you above others. Good theology brings you low so that you might build others up. You might magnify the glory of our God, not yourself. That's the kind of theology that we need. We need theology that brings us low, that makes our thoughts towards God and others look less like these scribes and more like the poor in spirit, the mourners, the helpless. More like this man lying on a cot before Jesus who knows he's completely paralyzed. He knows he has nothing but whatever Jesus, by his grace, gives to him. Now, that is the work of good theology. That's not man-centered theology. That's Christ-centered theology. And that's our third takeaway from this text. We need Christ-centered theology. We need Christ-centered community. We need a Christ-centered perspective. And we need Christ-centered theology, a faith centered on this Savior who forgives our sins rather than a faith centered on ourselves. So what is your faith center on? What's your religion all about? Are you a scribe? Are you hyper-focused on certain theological topics that make you feel better than the other people, the other Christians, the other churches around you? Do you, do you primarily see yourself as someone who has something to offer Christ's church rather than someone that has a need for Christ's church? 
Like, oh, oh, good thing you're here. Jesus has put you in his church to, to fix all the problems. You're his chosen repairman. That sounds like you're the savior. Your theology isn't centered on Christ. It's centered on you. Or do you come to Jesus like a paralytic, confessing you don't have anything to offer? Jesus is the one with something to offer. We need this humble, this lowly, Christ-centered theology. That's what we need. Lots more we could talk about here, but onward we must go to our final section, where Jesus corrects the scribes evil in their hearts by giving proof of his authority. Look at verse 5. He says, for which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and he went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. So let's all do something. This will be participatory. I've been talking a lot, so now, you know, y'all get to talk. Let's all do something together. Everybody repeat after me. Your sins are forgiven. Let's do it one more time. Get some unity. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Great. All right. Now, this is the fun part. Now, turn to the person next to you. I'm not going to tell you left or right because you're big boys and girls. Turn to the person next to you with your eyes. Look at them. So I shouldn't see any eyes on me. Turn to the person next to you. I still see eyes on me. Turn to the person next to you and look at them. Okay? Now, cure whatever illness or pain they have in their life. One, two, three. Okay, now, now you look back here. That's just a joke. You can look up at me. Okay. It's much easier to say your sins are forgiven, is it not? Than to heal someone, much less cure paralysis. And that's Jesus' point. His point is, you think I'm just some idiot walking around saying, ooh, your sins are forgiven to anyone who I see, right? Maybe if I do something that not just any person can do, Tell a paralyzed man to get up and walk. Maybe that will demonstrate to you that there's authority behind my words. And just like when I say, rise and walk, when Jesus says, rise and walk, and this man walks, you'll understand that when I say, your sins are forgiven, his sins are forgiven. Jesus is saying, when I speak, it's done. That's the authority of Jesus. And that's what happens. He tells this man to pick up his bed or his, his cot, more likely, and he was carried in on and to walk home. And the man does just that. He rose and he went home. No discomfort. He's not walking like a baby giraffe. Just perfectly normal. It's incredible. It's miraculous. But notice the reason Jesus gives for healing this man. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now, obviously, he has compassion on the man. He cares for his well-being. You know, he's not just using him as a political prop a photo op, you know. But he wants to understand everyone walks away with, the paralyzed man, his friends, the scribes, the, the crowd of people. He wants everyone to know, I do, in fact, have the authority on earth to forgive sins. I don't have to appeal to heaven like the priests do. No, I, I hear on earth, I have that authority. Jesus, he gives us confidence in the fact that he truly is who he says he is, that he is this promised one, this Messiah, 
or as he calls himself here, the Son of Man, which is another Old Testament title for this Messiah figure. But particularly, this name for the Messiah points to the crazy reality that the Savior of the world is a man, a human. This title for the Messiah, Son of Man, it comes from a prophecy in Daniel 7 that Jesus is referencing, where Daniel saw this vision of a human ruling in heaven, and a human ruling over everything, and a human having the kind of authority and honor and glory that's reserved for God. Jesus says, yes, I'm a man. If I'm a man forgiving sins, I'm a blasphemer. That is true. But not if I'm the son of man, the God-man, the man who is God, 100% God, 100% man, the, the one who has authority to forgive sin on the earth. This is huge. And the people gathered around this conversation. They respond accordingly. Verse 8, it says, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. That's a great response. To be told you're in the presence of God. And they glorified God, who had given such authority to men, to humans, to a man. They can't believe it, that a man would be given such authority. It's incredible. It really is. But... Don't be content with simply being amazed at this truth this morning. Don't just glorify God for being awesome. Don't just go, wow, that's amazing. Another great story. But then still relate to God from a distance. That's what the crowds ultimately did. We know that. But Jesus will later rebuke the entire city of Capernaum, saying that they saw mighty things, but they kept their distance. They didn't come to him for forgiveness of sins. They came to him for momentary entertainment and comfort. Came to him for the good vibes. You can't just be amazed by Jesus. You can't just appreciate his message, but then move on and somehow try to find forgiveness on your own. Jesus is the only one with that kind of authority, the authority to forgive our sin, which is why we must come to him. So our final takeaway this morning, our fourth and final takeaway is that more than anything, we need Christ Jesus to forgive our sins. We need Christ Jesus to forgive our sins. All the other things feed into our need for Jesus to forgive our sins. You need community to carry you to Christ Jesus so that he will forgive you of your sin. You need a perspective which proclaims that forgiveness of sins is the sum of your desires. It opens the door to eternal communion and joy and satisfaction in God. You need theology that proclaims your desperation and need for a savior, not a, a faith that seeks to make you your own savior. We only need one savior. More than anything, we need Christ Jesus to forgive our sins. Just listen to Jesus' invitation to us in Matthew uh, chapter 11, verses 27 through 29. Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my father, that's a reference to his authority. All things have been handed over to me by my father. I have all authority is what he's saying. And no one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. He says we have an exclusive relationship, me and the father. He's saying he's God. And then he says, based on the fact that all authority is his and that he is the God man. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. You will never find rest from all your striving if you're the one trying to provide it for yourself. You'll never find rest. You'll find a bunch of disappointment again and again and again. Come to Jesus this morning. Leave whatever you've been chasing behind you. Come to him as you are, paralyzed by your sin, unable to obtain righteousness for yourself. And in that, come and find rest, find forgiveness of sins, and find all that you've been searching for. So let's pray and consider the work of Jesus as we partake of communion this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we need you. We depend on you, as we sang this morning. I thank you for these songs that can get caught in our head, that we can sing once we leave here, that remind us that we have nothing. No good apart from you, no righteousness apart from you. I pray, God, that we would, we would uh, see ourselves for who we are, that you would provide that, by your spirit, we would see the truth of who we are, weak, desperate sinners in need of grace, and that we would see you for who you are, the one who gives us all we're looking for, the author of life, the provider of all. I pray that we would treasure the gift of Jesus this morning by your spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.